0: I'm holding a picture of my first passport in the picture. My mother is holding my first passport that I ever got at around nine years old. And the reason why I picked this item in particular is because that was at a very foundational and fundamental place In my development, my parents had just gone through a divorce, and the reason why this divorce even took place was because my mom became Muslim. My father grew up in a Christian household. I honestly didn't believe this until many years later and asked my father, what really happened? And he was like, yeah, she was Muslim and said that we couldn't be together anymore, which could be a whole theological discussion on its own. But my mom wanted to take us overseas and she wanted us to live in a Muslim majority country and experience international travel. And I remember like yesterday where I got the photo taken and going there with my mom and my younger sister, getting these pictures taken and then getting my passport back. Unfortunately, we never were able to travel abroad for a series of reasons, but this same passport I used maybe seven years later when I ended up going abroad myself to do my undergraduate studies in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. And so that passport meant something to our family to be able to travel abroad. And it meant something to me because it was a tool that enabled me to go abroad, to study Islam traditionally overseas for myself. And and that tool was very, very important, particularly in some of the most pivotal times of my life.
1: Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. In partnership with the Muslim Wellness Foundation and Bayon Islamic Graduate School, the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary presents a new season of our podcast, Our Seven Neighbors. This season is hosted by Dr. Camila Mukmin Rashad, and we are so glad you're here. You just heard a story from this week's guest, Imam Abdul-Malik Merchant, we ask all our guests to share a photo or object from their youth that was formative in their identity. My name is Kim Schultz, and I'm the coordinator of creative initiatives at the Interreligious Institute and the producer of this podcast. So if you are ready, let's join the continuing conversation between Dr. Rashad and Imam Merchant and hear how that passport photo informed who he is today.
2: My name is Dr. Camila Mukmin Rashad, and I'm the visiting assistant professor of psychology and Muslim studies at Chicago Theological Seminary. And I'm so thrilled to host the second season of Our Seven Neighbors. And this season, we're exploring the Black spiritual diaspora and sharing rich, dynamic stories from members of the Black community people of African descent, and of all the spiritual traditions that meet in the crossroads. And today I have joining me, Imam Abdul-Malik Merchant, and we're going to hear a little bit more about the story of the passport and what it meant to travel abroad and to study Islam. So I'm so excited to have you with us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
2: I want to hear a little bit more about what it meant for nine-year-old Abdul-Malik to have this passport in hand. But first... I want you to, just for a moment, think of your life as a story or a novel. So let's even imagine for a second that this novel of your life even has a title. What would the title of your life story novel be?
0: You know, it's interesting you say that because I often look at my life as a story. And I I know the chapters. I can tell you the story from different perspectives, but the title is not something I've ever thought about before. Perhaps it would be self-exploration. I don't know. Maybe introspection.
2: Tell me a little bit about, you already have chapters. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about those chapters.
0: So it depends on which version you want, but predominantly the one that usually resonates with me the most is just thinking of sort of my age, but also where I am in my life. So you have the first eight years, my parents are together. They're married. We're living in the Maryland greater DMV area. But then at eight years old, my parents get divorced and we then are in a sort of a liminal phase where we move with my grandma for a little bit and then we move into our own apartment and that phase doesn't last but for a couple of years. But the next big chapter of my life is in the Northern Virginia area, really in a Muslim bubble. I live across the street from one of the most prominent mosques in the area and I'm going to school at a very, very different private Islamic school. The mosque is Arab and Somali. The school is South Asian. And I'm one of the only African-Americans in both of these contexts. And so I'm learning what it's like to be in this larger Muslim community while
2: simultaneously not recognizing who I am in that. It sounds like from the beginning, this question of who am I? where do I belong? Who am I becoming? So I I want you to sort of recall nine-year-old Abdul Malik, who's trying to make sense of his mother's new faith, coinciding with your parents' divorce. So what did it mean to you at that time for your mom to say, we're Muslim now?
0: My mom was very wise in how she integrated Islam into our lives. It wasn't, you know, we're Muslim overnight. It was we moved locations. I went to a summer camp first before I even joined the school. Before that, I even was going to Juma while I was still in public school. So in the fourth grade, she'd pick me up early. I'd go to Juma with her. And so I got to have a taste into Friday prayer. She just was very wise about it. But I remember when it was actually said, like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And eight-year-old, nine-year-old of the Malik was like, hold up. I don't know about that. This new, like I I get at one time we didn't listen to music and I I get all that. I Get your headscarf and all of that. But I don't know if this is for me. And I remember distinctly, she said, well, she told me to do what Muslims call istikhara. She told me to ask God, to pray and to ask God what I should do. And she said, well, you should just ask God. You should pray on it. And I said, well, what does that mean? How does that look? She said, well, just ask God to guide you to what's best. And nine-year-old me, before I went to sleep, because I made my prayers before I go to sleep, and I said, God, I don't know what this Islam stuff she's talking about is, but you know, if it's good, guide me to it. I remember very distinctly in my bed on the top bunk. And then maybe a few days, a week later, I said, okay, I want to do it. And that's around the time that I went to the summer camp and really started living as a Muslim. But it really wasn't until I was 16 that I very intentionally said for myself, this is what I'm going to do.
2: And you mentioned your mother as wise, and it also sounds like she wanted to give you the opportunity to embrace, right, instead of feeling forced. And, you know, the verse in the Quran that, you know, there is no compulsion in religion. So it sounds like your, your mother was also trying to practice that. So as you're accepting and you're trusting in your mom that this is a new path that you all as a family going to follow, how did that impact your relationship with your father? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um- You know, if I'm thinking of family systems theories and triangulation and a dyad and...
2: So I'm going to interrupt you because I want you to answer as nine-year-old Abdul Malik. You've been given permission to ask God whether this is a path that you also want to follow with your whole heart. And it's coinciding with your mom's divorce, you're moving, you're transitioning into new sort of... Peer relationships in school and summer camp. So there's a lot of transitions that's also happening at the same time. So I want you to answer as that child and not as sort of the practical theologian. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: it didn't impact then. At nine, it was just a formality. I remember my mom sitting me down, telling me my parents were getting divorced, being sort of confused. I remember in the fourth grade, I still was in public school talking to the school counselor, but my dad would get us every other weekend and we'd spend time and I acclimated to that. It wasn't necessarily traumatic for me. And we maintained that relationship. He would come get us. We'd spend time, him and my younger sister. But it did make my father re-engage with his faith And so shortly after that, he started going to church again, and we started going to church with him. And I remember being maybe 10, 11, being confused about Christian theology. Like, I'm doing origami while the pastor is speaking, but I remember distinctly asking him, and maybe I was being confrontational because I was going to Muslim school and learning about Islamic theology, but I was like, when the pastor says God, who is referring to? Jesus or the Creator? And he was like, shh, shh just pay attention. Um, <laughs> and I remember that sort of then starting to cause a problem because my father really, he wanted to go to church. He wasn't trying to, like, it was for his own spiritual path. And I didn't want to waste, at that time, I didn't want to waste my Sunday at church. And so that is really, and that's later, that's like maybe 11, that started to be a viscer between me and my dad.
2: So at the time, again, looking back, Mm. how would you describe how your father is defining faith?
0: How he was defining faith? I'm sure it was probably antagonistic. It was the reason my grandparents divorced when he was eight as well. And what I know now, speaking to other family members, this was a huge thing emotionally for him. And frankly, I don't know if he ever recovered from the trauma of that. And I'm not putting blame on anyone. And so it was huge. He never showed that to us though. Now faith is very much a part of his life. He serves as like an assistant deacon, I believe. So he like helps get the deacon stuff together and so when I was in Boston and I told him I was going there, he's like, "Wow, we have the same job in many ways." Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's very spiritual. We have so much in common. It's it's crazy. He's very spiritual. And so now we talk faith from a place of love.
2: So now I would like to pivot to your mom, who decides to make this pretty transformative decision to embrace Islam. Do you mind me asking how old she is at the time?
0: I just did the math, and it really shocking that she was the exact same age then that I am now. She was 32.
2: Amazing! (laughs) Oh my goodness. In some ways, this really exciting, unknown, but transformative decision is disruptive right it contributes to the divorce maybe not the only right factor but one of them she's moving so relocating i'm not sure if it disrupts her social relationships now that she's decided to embrace this new faith so i wonder again as now that you're 32 knowing that she converted to islam when she was 32 what would you say was the sort of single most motivating factor for her in staying grounded in the decision that she made to become Muslim?
0: My mom is an incredibly adherent, but also faithful person in that faith is the primary, one of the biggest primary things in her life. And she was very strict with myself and my sister and people would make fun of her. Or make fun of us, but they would also ridicule her, like, you're being too tough, you're doing this, you're doing that. And she would always she would tell me sometimes even in tears, like, I'm gonna be held accountable by God for what I do with Mm -hmm. you guys. So like that's all I like. I'm I know I don't know what I'm doing necessarily because she grew up in a two-family household and now she's in a new world as a single mom. But she knew that she was going to be questioned by God. Like this was a, as we say in Arabic, in a manna, a trust that she had, that she was going to do her absolute best to fulfill her side of it. And I think that was the biggest motivating factor for her.
2: I want to understand a little bit more about mm-hmm. where her faith stemmed from. So you mentioned she grew up in a two parent household, mom and dad, And were they practicing Christians, not particularly religious, perhaps spiritual? Give us a sort of a window into your spiritual lineage through your mom.
0: That's the prequel (laughs) to the the book. (laughs) Um, Both my grandparents were agnostic. They believed in something greater, not really having a faith tradition. But my grandfather was somewhat science oriented. He was in Korea, came home and worked for the vet. I think it's called a VA. And so he did stuff with science, whatever. But my aunt, my mom's the youngest of four. My aunt is seven years older than my mom. And so when my mom was eight, there's something special about the number eight in our family. When my mom was eight, my aunt was almost 18 or so. She must have been 16, almost 18. Yeah. She accepts Islam. She Mm embraces Islam and then a few years later gets married and moves out. So my mom grew up thinking she's a Muslim Christian in that she believed in Islamic theology, the oneness of God, monotheism, the oneness of God and Jesus sort of being a prophet, not a, not a divine in his own right. But she went to church for spirituality because that was the only spiritual Mm -hmm. community she knew. It wasn't until I was about five And I was in a daycare that was in a church, so she's still connected to religion, that I came home and said, Mom, Jesus is the Son of God. And for her, that was like, I don't know, a a foundational shaking point for her Mm. because she said, we don't believe that. And she said, we believe in the oneness of God. And Jesus is not, we're Muslim. She didn't say we're Muslims. And I don't think she had that language, but she believed in Islamic theology. Mm -hmm. And so that day we she took us out of the daycare. We never went back. Oh Uh, wow. She started exploring, which then led to two, three years later, when I'm eight, she fully embraces Islam.
2: So I'm seeing and I'm resisting the urge to think about sort of the And my son is eight
0: right now, so this is really weird.
2: (laughs) So when your father is eight, you said his parents divorced. Yep. When your mom is eight-
0: She is introduced to Islam.
2: Introduced to Islam. And your son is now eight. Yeah. I want to ask this question. What would you tell your son about faith now that he's eight years old and you are the same age now that your mother was then when she embraced Islam?
0: That's something I think about all the time and is probably one of the primary motivating factors in my parenting style, simply because my son is very much similar to me, but we embrace Islam. I was a part of, I lived in a Muslim bubble, as I like to refer to it as. I was part of a very live, active Muslim community, went to a different Muslim school. So I was a part of two communities and I got to see children who were born Muslim and the cultural sort of interpretation of Islam and how that impacted them. I'll say that I focus far more on manners than I do on religion. Because there's a verse in the Quran that God says, speaking to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, but indeed you don't guide whom you love, but God guides whom he wills. Hmm. I've seen it in my own household, like I'm an Imam, I, I studied Islam for 10 years, I got a master's in practical theology, my profession and trade is pastoral care. You guys can see it, but behind me is my bookshelf and like, this is something that's very, very important in my life, all the artwork, everything. My sister doesn't have any real connection to the religion, as far as mm. I know. And it's fine, whatever. But we grew up in the same household. She went to Islamic school longer than I did, et cetera, et cetera. And so I understand and and fully believe that God guides people. And so I'm going to try to provide a healthy, loving environment that is far less forceful or or, or assertive.
2: Prescriptive, perhaps?
0: Exactly. Than what my mom had. And that's a conversation that she and I have actually all the time, not in an antagonistic way, but like. This is why, based on my experience professionally and personally, now that I'm raising second generation Muslims who don't know anything but Islam, that I'm a little bit more gentle with our practice. Like, so yes, the entire culture, the ethos of our household Islam, you're gonna learn how to say when you sneeze, there's a prayer that we say, and what you say, and when you respond, and our two-year-olds know it. (laughs) But Theology is taught in, in more experiential. Um, when we're talking about rain and where rain comes from, I'm going to say, well, yeah, it's because the clouds and et cetera, but God's the one who makes that happen. And so that's more my approach than, you know, sitting down, studying books, et cetera. And then perhaps because I'm also somewhat lazy.
2: <laughs> so I want to tie together some of the themes that I've noticed around family and faith and seeking, exploration, and also a feeling of belonging, right? What does this faith mean to me in my life where I am? And so as you've thought about and continue to think about, right, how you provide a space that is called home in this faith for yourself, for your children, What do you feel is now guiding you as you create that home?
0: I think it's everything you just said, if I'm going to respond honestly. I think it's exploration. I think it's like self-exploration and uh, all of who we are and the nuances of us. There was a time I questioned my Blackness because I grew up in in the first chapter in a very white area, white Jewish area then the middle chapter in a very immigrant community. And so I may, I, immigrant community sort of is more home for me than even an inner city African-American community. I'm also a nerd and, you know, I don't fit into stereotypes perhaps. And so it made me challenge, you know, in my own blackness. So like faith and identity, but also family that there's a lot of love around. And so I think there's self exploration there's faith, but then there's like legacy and honor that also is very much important for not just how I articulate and and try to move myself but what I try to imbue in my household. The foundation has been sown. and and nurtured so that the harvest that comes from it is one of love and care and not animosity, that the fruit can actually be its ripest and not something that's bitter.
2: Mm, Um, That's beautiful. My last and final question. Poet Lucille Clifton wrote, say it clear and it will be beautiful. So I ask you this, what in your own life would you like to make clear so that it is beautiful for you for your children, and for your community?
0: If I want to be very honest, like okay, I'm not going to intellectualize this. I think I want my kids to see Islam as beautiful. The hope is that I can embody this prophetic tradition and then show people how beautiful it is as I believe it to be.
2: And I think that's beautiful, right? And, and I think even you hesitating to answer the question also says a lot. Right, that you're still sort of seeking the answer to this question. So as we think about the rich spiritual traditions, right, your own spiritual lineage, the something that happens around eight years old in your family of origin, the ways that your mom was able to demonstrate her wisdom, her commitment, her dedication, her thoughtfulness in allowing you to embrace this faith. That is also part of what you have just made clear, right? And so imagine your son listening to this interview when he's 32. What do you think he would say?
0: <sighs> That's powerful. I don't know. I hope that he'll say that, you know, Baba, as he would hopefully still refer to me as, Baba gave us all. And Grandma is special because it's all from the prayers and the work that Grandma did that you know, she laid that foundation. I, this is something I do think about because you know, my aunt is not as adherent to Islam all the time. And she's gone through her own difficulties and challenges. But it's because of that, that my family is where they are today. And, mm-hmm. and I hope that through the work that I'm able to do, my mom, the rest of us, that she gets rewards for that. Mm-hmm. I was telling a friend of mine the other day, like, I think she's going to be in paradise just because she introduced us to this. And so I hope that if my son is hearing this, you know, that he would say it was true, that, you know, I did my best in the very least.
2: Inshallah. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this season of Our Seven Neighbors and offering a window into your own spiritual lineage, the stories that we've just begun to tell. And psychologist Daniel P. McAdams. He also wrote that if you want to know me, then you must know my story, for my story defines who I am. And if I want to know myself to gain insight into the meaning of my own life, then I too must come to know my story. It is a story that I continue to revise and to tell myself and sometimes to others as I go on living. So I am incredibly appreciative and humbled by your willingness to share just a little bit of your story so we can come to know you so thank you assalamu alaikum
0: thank you so much wa alaikum salam
1: so there it is we hope you enjoyed that story and conversation between dr kamila mukmin rashad and imam abdul malik merchant thank you so much for joining us More information on our guest, as well as his formative photo, can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com. And learn more about Chicago Theological Seminary at ctschicago.edu. We hope you will join us next time for another episode of Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. Thank you for listening to Our Seven Neighbors. We would love it if you would please share this podcast and subscribe. And share your photo story with us on social media. You can find us on the IRI on Facebook or Instagram. And if you feel compelled, tell us your story. Share a photo. Or even better, share it with someone around you. As the poetry of Lucille Clifton offers, say it clear and it will be beautiful. See you next time.